many memories have come flooding back. I put this song on repeat, just crying my eyes out. It made me feel so bloody alive. This song really nails the feeling of nostalgia for a place. And we all just stopped talking and just stared at the radio. Like, what is that? It's part of the noble genre of songs by women about masturbation. I love it. I love that song so much. Box. Meet people through their music with Ash Berdebez on FBI. So Marlene Cummins is my guest on Out of the Box today. She's a renowned blues singer and Marlene has lived a lot of history. She was part of the Australian Black Panther Party. She grew up on fringe camps in the outback of Queensland. She came to Sydney to play the blues and she's an award-winning broadcaster just up the road from us at Koori Radio. Welcome and out of the box, Marlene. Oh, thank you for having me on your show, Ash. And so you didn't actually you didn't actually grow up in this area. Yes. Where were you raised? I was born in a town called Kanamala up in the outback Queensland and, and all my brothers and sisters. Uh, we were born in different towns, uh, Roma, Cloncurry, uh, all these outback because my father was trying hard to get work as it was in the, back in the day. And uh, But my father's country is Cape York, Kukuyelindji country. My mother's country is Keppel Island in um, Harvey Bay. Uh, that's the roots of uh, their old people. Mm. Wapabara, sorry, from Keppel Island, yeah. Now, as always with Out of the Box, you've brought in a lot of music from your life that's meant something to you, that's got a story behind it. And we've, we're going to be able to hear a few songs from you personally, mm. um, especially off your album, Koori mm. Woman Blues. Mm. And so I was thinking maybe we could take our first track and make it Boomerang Alley. Could I just say something before you play it so that people can have an understanding of it? Uh, and naturally, my first uh, inspiration was my father, who was a great musician. I grew up around him. And this is what Boomerang Alley is about. It was a fringe camp. We had no rights back in the day then. And all, and, and on the camp, the fringe camp, the, I sing in Boomerang Alley about all the characters, Harry Isles in his dapper suit strutting around and all. And uh, they're all the characters, the real life, my father, the, I think the picture shows in it with no roof, uh, Nick Contolian, uh, where we go when uh, payday come around, um, Ducko Fraser, who my father used to jam with, great musician. So this is true to life and the great music I, was, I grew up around by phenomenal Aboriginal musicians. It was in the town of Winton many years ago. It was in the 1950s, the place I had to grow. Best years of my life in Boomerang Alley. We didn't have no worries about what we'd eat today. We could fish and hunt or hang around and play. Us Murray kids had fun when the fruit truck come around. We'd try and steal the fruit and hope we wasn't found. Best years of my life in Boomerang Alley. In his old blue ute Seifer and Johnny Living in their tent Auntie Amy Doyle Ada and Billy Kemp Best years of my life In Boomerang Alley At night there was a movies And the old picture show It didn't have no roof And everyone would go My daddy used to jam at Ducko Fraser's house 
With Richard Martin sliding the playing was grass Best years of my life Was hearing guitar boogie Play that guitar boogie Around the land, he played at all the dances and in the Wintertown band. No one played guitar like my daddy used to do. Drove a caterpillar tractor. I'm telling you, this is true. Best years of my life in Boomerang Alley. There was Nick Cantolian's cafe where we would get to eat. When Patty came around, that show was a no choice of where to live, we weren't allowed to stay in town. They could keep us out, but they couldn't keep us down. Best years of my life in Boomerang Alley. Our shack was on the last block near the old cemetery. And we got everything we wanted as long as it was free. It was always hot and dusty, I recall the hot, dry heat. Now my mind walks down the track, but it used to be my feet. But the seas of my life, boomerang alley. Yeah, best years of my life, boomerang alley. Best years of my life, in boomerang alley. heard about a few characters in that song just there now who's who's your favorite character growing up i loved living on boomerang alley i really because i remember all the characters there was seafriend johnny living in the tent he was a little short white guy and she was a tall uh, aboriginal woman and she wore the pants you know and he was so sweet and so such an endearing character and they were very much in love you know but she only had to give him a certain look and he just knew if he had to shut up or he had to just walk <laughs> away or whatever you know that's all it took <laughs> and uh, just be they were kind of next door in, in a tent and we were in a tin shack and then there's Harry Isles like I say in the song in his dapper suit uh, Harry Isles walked around the camp in a suit every day just about uh, not just his suit if it was hot he'd, he'd have well tailored pants on and he was very good looking actually I was even infatuated by him as a child <laughs> <laughs> he was so good looking and he'd walk around and he and all the girls he knew you know that's all he's a bit of a, a peacock I suppose <laughs> definitely uh, <laughs> the, the original peacocking <laughs> that's great um, so is Boomerang Alley a small community is it a couple streets or no, it's 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 out on the flat. You can't. There was no streets at such. They're just dirt tracks through. Because remember, you know, we didn't have the sorts of uh, um, infrastructure. Yeah, yeah. As would anybody living in a town. You know, it was a fringe camp. So I guess you're the first artist, Marlene, that I've heard singing basically the blues from an Aboriginal perspective. And I only just kind of realised that it seems like it's a fairly comparable experience when you were growing up. Yes. I have a very reverent respect 
and uh, deep regard for the blues. I'm not just singing blues because it sounds good. I'm I am going soul deep as to the respect of its um, history. The fact that uh, it evolved from the oppression of the, the black American being uh, transported from Africa to America uh, to the uh, slavery, the cotton fields. And uh, the work conditions that we actually, uh, we worked on the land. We worked for a lot of uh, landowners. My father was one of them. I've seen him work really hard. Back in the early 60s, he drove a big Caterpillar tractor and not many people black or white could drive those things much in those days. And my father was a real go-getter. And he was a great musician too. And he, I guess he experienced the blues of this country in that regard too, trying to get work. So I do know that my father was an exception musician he was phenomenal guitarist and he uh, there are times when he'd play and he was told to sit at the back he wasn't allowed to mix in with the whites uh, the same similarities and uh, RSL clubs in Queensland because great music can't be denied times when we had to sit out inside and wait for him so once he got a bit of money you know we were off to go and uh, get some food and things like that and mm. uh, we picked you know we went out with our dad he did um, clearing of the land and, uh, stick picking, uh, uh, picking peanuts. Uh, stick picking is when, uh, when they, when they clear the land, the the rich landowners, and we got to literally go around uh, physically and pick up all the smaller pieces and put them in a pile and burn them. And we'd go out with our father, and he'd ring barking, station hand. He he lived all the elements. Um, of the uh, the tradition of whence blues came from and how you applied the music to those experiences, there was a common ground. Yeah, definitely. Mm. So this this historically is at the time when you're when you're a kid, the time of the Aboriginal Protection Act being introduced. Now I kind of wanted to ask you, what does that actually mean? How does that kind of curb your freedoms? Well, when you're subjected to the uh, policy of the Queensland Act, uh, and, and a lot of people don't know this, that the, the Queensland so-called Protection Act, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Protection Act, was borrowed uh, to be utilised in South Africa, um, which is which is we all know as the apartheid laws. So and, South uh, Africa was inspired by our Protection they, Act? Or? Yeah, they took the actual policy wow. to be applied. And that's that's the uh, frustrating thing about when you live through these stories and a lot of non-Indigenous people don't know about it. But when you think about it, have you what contact have you had with them? You, for the fact that we were separated, we were segregated, we were put on missions and we lived on fringe camps. I don't regret my past for the... I regret that we never had the choices, yes, and uh, we are still fighting for those basic rights. I'm, I'm grateful that my playground was the bush, you know, the, and uh, we had fun. When we were starving, Dad would go and steal a sheep or something. There was all sorts of wonderful <laughs> escapades, you know, regarding stealing a sheep from the rich landowners and taking it home, you know. So now the first song that we took from your album was Boomerang Alley. So mm. so now we've got this song from Otis Redding, A Change Is Gonna Come. And why did you want to pick this song? Well, it very much reminds me of my father because uh, my dad was born by the river. My, my dad was a great musician like Otis Redding. Thank you. 
this river I've been running ever since It's been a Coming, but I know, I know, change has gotta come. Oh, yes, it is. It's been too hard living, oh, and I'm afraid to die. I don't know what's up there beyond the clouds. It's been a I know, I know, change has got to come, oh yes. Yeah, a change going to come. It's it says everything for me. It's about the struggle, having faith. I tell you this little story too. It's something. It's quite uh, exquisite. When I lost my father in 1988, uh, the year of the bicentennial, um, 
I was in grief and like I suppose anybody, you, you wonder, if you lose someone really close to you, you know, you wonder if they're in a better place. I choose to believe there is a better place and uh, and but you sort of, for some reason, you know, you, you're in that place, you want to believe in something greater than yourself and that they do go there and you want some assurance. I actually pray to my God as I understand for some Oh God, can you just show me or something? You know, it was that's what you do when you're in grief and stuff. I can't remember how long after, but it wasn't too long after. I had this amazing dream of my father and I was ready jamming together. They both had white clothing on. They were in this big sound shell kind of thing, uh, um, and Dad was playing the pedal steel guitar, which he was exceptional at. My father, the most amazing feeling too as a musician, he had an incredible feel. And Otis Redding was singing My Girl, I Got Sunshine, because he has recorded a version of uh, the Temptation song. And I like to believe, and I choose to believe, thank you, God. That's what your dad's doing it in heaven. It doesn't get better than that. He's jamming with my favourite singer. <laughs> <laughs> How ironic is that? That I and I'm thank you. Well, I believe anyway. What a beautiful picture. It was yeah. It was, I can still see it, and I remember waking up, you know, like with this amazing feeling. Oh man, that was nice. Mm. We're going to take our next song, and it's called If You're Ready, Come Go With Me by the Staple Singers. But give us a bit of an idea about yeah. where this song fits in in your history. Oh, well, I love the Staple Singers because they basically uh, do what I'm trying to do, uh, educate people and find a better place to be at in regards to uh, the, the social evil of uh, racial oppression. And uh, I and I loved Mavis Staples anyway. I met her. I gave her a, an a, a Aboriginal T-shirt and... Uh, all right, we'll take that song now. Staple Singers, if you're ready, come go with me on Out of the Box. It's Marlene Cummins as my guest today.
edition out of the box on FBI 94.5. My guest today is Marlene Cummins, and we were just listening to the staple singers. If you're ready, come go with me. And what what time in your life were you listening to this song? Why do you want to bring that song on? I was on to them back in the 70s when I was a young woman after I'd had my son when I was 19. Uh, we gravitated the city, though, when I was about 12 years old. Uh, Come Go With Me is, uh, you could say it's almost like a kind of thing. Yeah, let's get it together. Let's find a common ground. Let's find share our common pains and hurts. And uh, you listen to the lyrics of that, no hatred, you know, no, you know, just... It, it really is that simple. I just love it. And they're great musicians. But, um, yeah, we came to the city and the whole kind of uh, dynamics of everyday living started to change. You know, my father gravitated into heavy gambling and um, uh, I I wanted to go to high school. I, um, I really wanted to, but my father... Um, I wrote to my uncle George up in far north Queensland to help me buy... Uh, high school things but it didn't happen and I just eventually left home and uh, yeah and uh, there was uh, an effort to fit into society so to speak and uh, uh, I was only uh, very young 15 uh, going on 16 I my hitchhiking was the thing of the day you know surfies and all that and mods you know we had these kind of trends in regards to were you a surfy or mod or a rocker or whatever I was a mod <laughs> anyway <laughs> and um I, I um yeah I basically did full circle up to towns about Alice Springs all in my efforts to get a job and fit in and I experienced a lot of racial uh, hatred and prejudices uh, trying to get work and being objectified uh, uh, and put into all sorts of horrible uh, situations uh, was victim to some terrible racial hatred come down to Sydney up back up to Brisbane and that's when I ran into Dennis Walker now so the staple singers they were part of the civil rights movement and you were part mm. of the movement yourself in that time and so what is the Black Panther movement for people who aren't privy to it who people you know I mean we've got a lot of young listeners what was the Black Panther movement what did it mean to you well basically blacks were fed up and they were uh, uh, the founders were of uh, 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 Huey P. Newton and uh, uh, Eldridge Cleaver and um, so what did they want what did what did the Black Panther they, Party they formed form this for? group uh, to say that they'd had enough and that no more peaceful uh, protests. You know, we're going to be in your face. We're going to learn our legal rights. And we we, we wasn't going to be like them because the Black Panthers in America, uh, we were taking elements of their struggle to form our own Black Panther group here, but we weren't fighting for the constitutional right to carry a gun because that was in their culture. How did the Australian Black Panther movement start then? Well, Dennis, Dennis Walker... See, when I came home, I went to a community dance. That We always have our own community dances, you know, just like the blacks over there have their own community dances, you know, to get away from the all the oppressive stuff uh, in uh, mainstream society that we endure. I I got introduced to Dennis Walker and Sammy Watson Jr. And they were the founders. They got the idea to start a group here. They were communicating with the Panthers. And, they, and I met Dennis at night and I was... 
I was really smitten by him. Oh, well, not well. Yeah, he was pretty much. Uh, uh, handsome Aboriginal guy, but what and I guess <laughs> also like the Black Panther movement in the states. This is kind of you know we're talking about the late sixties when everyone's wearing leather oh, and cool ray bands and they look afros, amazing. the best afros yes. in history. That's where you'll find them. <laughs> so was it the same with the Black Panther movement in up in Brizzy? Yeah, that's what it was. We, you know, it was the day. It was the time of the afro, and and the you know the. Uh, the the fashions that be, but the, the Panthers had their own kind of uh, approach to what they wore, you know. Like, and so we adopted the same dress code, you know. Um, the black gloves, the 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 black clothes. We all, we only wore black, 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 and uh, we wore all our badges, you know, um, black power badges, and uh, you know all these little cliches that were on in regards to black um, power and. Uh, uh, and empowering ourselves, and uh, we uh, pretty much uh, took on their ten point platform platform program, but we changed it to suit our situation here. In re- to in well, the first one was land rights, uh, uh, medical services, um, even a bref- breakfast program for the children that the Panthers had. See, the Black Panthers were. Uh, really demonised because of the likes of Edgar J. Hoover, you know, in power, you know. Like, oh, yeah, as in from the FBI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they had like, a whole, they had a whole um, program dedicated to them. I mean, Edgar J. Hoover was saying that it is the, the Black Panther Party was the biggest internal threat yes. in the United States at that time. <coughs> and, um, and when you were living in this, in the house where the, was basically the headquarters of the Black Panther Party... Mm. Did but, you did you notice that you know the government was watching you guys? Oh yeah, or? definitely. They were always par- There was a, they always had a car parked just down the road. They were always parked. And we see we we lived that the headquarters. We lived there. We we after breakfast every morning we'd have our political education. We'd read all the stuff that the Panthers put out. We'd even watched a movie, a homemade movie on how to politicise your group. And so, were you in a relationship with the leader of the party? Yes, yes, yeah, yes, Dennis. Yeah. And uh, that was kind of uh, difficult because I was young. You know, when you're young, you, you fall madly in love and stuff yeah. too. But yeah, 18? Yeah, 19? yeah, 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 18. 17 going on 18. I was 17 when I first met him and he was 25. And um, he um, he was very charismatic and um, he, I uh, – and for a 17-year-old, you know, you just want to – but I'll – see – I was smart enough to realise, you know, like I can't just go out there and be a teenager as opposed to white privilege can be. You know, I've, I've experienced it. I've, I've been around Australia. I've had all these horrible things. I, I tried to fit in. I was objectified only because I was an Aboriginal woman. I was violated horribly because I was an Aboriginal woman. And uh, so Dennis was like, he turned on the light. This is it. I'm kidding myself. If I think I back then in the 70s, I can go out uh, uh, and try to fit in and be a teenager and do all teen- things. Teenager, you tried to get work, you're always put down. You were refused entry to places. It didn't matter how much you dressed up or being at, or if, whether you, it was simply because you were Aboriginal. It wasn't. Yes, I fell in love with Dennis because he was very beautiful Aboriginal man, and that's natural, you know, when you're young. But I've seen it's what he, he was, was saying. He yeah. was a total hottie. Oh well, yeah. Now you're putting it right in today's terms. He was. He was like. He was 
proper hottie. <laughs> Lots of girls from all backgrounds were pretty much uh, taken by him because he had the look, but he had the brain. And he he impressed me from that standpoint. He was smart. Yeah, this is what I like. This is what I like. He's smart. And this is how it's going to be from now on. So uh, we've got a couple of songs here. Now, one goes to 20 seconds. It's the prelude for Koori Woman. And then yeah. we've got Koori Woman. So I, I wanted mm. to play both just because I think the prelude's really cool. Can you mm. tell us a bit about this? Well, the prelude, all the voices are laid. They're my own voices. I, be, I grew up singing traditionally too, learning off my uh, Aboriginal women elders. I was exposed to a lot of traditional style singing. Koori Woman is uh, definitely about what I'm about or who I am, what I want to represent in regards to uh, a battered Aboriginal women, you know, the uh, the highest incarceration people, whether it's man or woman in the world, is with Aboriginal women per capita in this country. And I have a love for my sisters that goes beyond life itself. Yeah, I'm, I just, I just love them, and I just want them to come through and achieve. You know, they, like in the song, I, they, they are the backbone of the struggle. They took the brunt of uh, uh, invasion of this country, and they still do to this today. This song I'd like to dedicate to Aboriginal women of this country. Aboriginal women throughout history, Truganini, Mamshu, Ujuru Nunako, Ruth Cummins, Kate Elizabeth McCarthy. I sing this song. I sing it for my sisters, who I feel are the backbone of our struggle in this country. Trying to keep it together. Oh, yeah. Everything. Oh, yeah. 
talking about mom shell Don't forget Trigger Mini documentary about your life black panther woman which is directed by rachel perkins so she's mm-hmm. she is redfern now brand new day yeah and the yes, like yeah. as a as a consequence i assume of doing that documentary you got to go to the states and meet the black panthers that were the the original black panther movement in new york was it new york uh yeah new york uh we they came from different parts of the world um, what was that like? I, don't, I just want to know what it was like for someone from Australia in this kind of satellite <laughs> of the Black Panther movement, being able to meet these people know, who are I'm also the, very cool. I mean, let's let's be I'll frank. Call it, but but see, I'll, I'll be I'll board up a typical black fella, you know, Aboriginal grassroots. You don't, yeah, it's wonderful. You appreciate the experience, but you're all one mob. I didn't want it. I didn't treat them like. Gods or no. rock stars? Nah. You get a little bit starstruck, not even a little bit. Oh, come on! Privilege, <laughs> privilege more to the chair, yeah. but it's not. See, dad, dad was like that. He, you know, I can say this without any fear of contradiction. When you brought up proper black fellow way, that's how you are. See, I don't, I never treat them any different to how. I, although I appreciate and I'm thankful for the privilege, I don't treat them any different than I and talk to them any different to how I talk to someone who's on the flag and in the park. Put it that way. With the Black Panthers in Australia, the movement that you were a part of, what what did the Black Panther Party achieve in Australia? Uh, oh, it's a tricky question. No, no. Oh, there's, so, there's the, too many things. So this, this, I'm glad you asked because a lot of people don't realise a lot of the services we got today attributed to the uh, ideology of the Black Panther Party. That's where it started. Brisbane, we we're the only one that pioneered in having an actual headquarters but the political ideology of the panther movement spread all over this country we were actually does this mean are you talking about things like the legal services yeah the legal services this is what was on the 10 point platform program we demand to have our own legal services our child care our own uh, medical services these services here you said redfern attributed to the uh, to the black panther party and how the, the, that consciousness uh, swept through our community because they took that, that uh, in-your-face stance and we were like, wow, yeah, these are our heroes. These are the ones we'll take, you know, no more peaceful placard waving, you know. We're going to take their stance, but we're just going to put our Aboriginal stamp on it. Yeah. Why did you end up leaving the Black Panther movement? Uh, well, initially, the, just from um, general terms, the relationship fell through. And um, why? Well, well, uh, for 
the fact that the police came down on us too heavy and they were trying to get Dennis on trumped-up charges and our relationship had had fallen apart. It sort of it it happened by itself. Uh, once again, you know, the, the struggle within itself to keep it together got weak and weaker because of police harassment. Um, and what did you do after you left the movement? Because you weren't living together then. Yeah, I went, I went to New Zealand and um, uh, I, uh, I ironically, I left myself open, vulnerable. I, I went back to the alcohol and something nasty happened to me and I went to report it. And um, then uh, I ended up getting locked up because I was told as an Aboriginal woman, and I asked for to be I asked to be violated because all you I was told by the interviewing detective that you Aboriginal women ask for trouble. Wait, so, wait. So what are you actually talking about? What happened? Oh yes, what happened uh, as to you? I well, I was violated at knife point uh, 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 by a particular uh, man in the community that. Uh, where, yeah, and... And that's the response of the police? Yeah, that's the response of the police. That's, like, you probably shocked. That's common, like, that's a, that's a social norm for Aboriginal women. What, blaming it on you? To be subjected. Yeah, I was, I was told that uh, when I went to... I, I actually went... I was staying with a mob uh, non-Indigenous students called Socialist Youth Alliance after Dennis and I split up. But I hit the... Grog, so to speak, the piss one, one night, and uh, it and uh, it was an opportunity for someone to take advantage of. And I woke up, you know, because uh, I'd passed out from too much alcohol, and I woke up in a in a bushland, and this man did all these nasty things, and then I and left me there out, on, and I crawled uh, out of the bush onto the side of a road, and a taxi driver on an early morning ship picked me up because I was all dishevelled and distraught and he took uh took me um home he wanted to take me to the hospital and said no take me home first um why because i had a social conditioning of this is what happens to you and you got no power go home and forget about it so i went uh, to um the youth alliance they were nice uh, young students, they said, oh, we're going to take you to hospital. This is not right, Mum. So I went along with it. I had a shot, went down to, to get interviewed to report it. They encouraged me to report it. I reported and um, they, they and the interview took a, uh, a direction uh, by the detective saying, where were you drinking? I said, at the Alliance Hotel. Uh, that's where a lot of Aboriginal people and gay people used to drink because you couldn't drink anywhere then. You know, they two uh, marginalised groups and I said oh isn't that where a lot of uh, poofters and, and uh, Aboriginals drink and I said and I'm thinking what the? you know I started to get a bit uneasy and I said well yeah and he said um, there's a lot of, he said there's a lot of Aboriginal women prostitutes that go there too eh? and I said look I've come to report uh, this thing that's happened to me so I said, he said then he said are you a prostitute did you offer yourself a prostitution when you didn't get paid? You decided to scream rape, and I went. I swore. I said, because I was traumatized. I was still traumatized. I already had it shot. I said, Ah, oh, f and hell, I've been raped. I come here for get help. And he and he with that he just slammed his um, notebook shut. And he said, Oh, 
book it for indecent language. Wow. And I got locked up uh, and I got fingerprinted um, and I was crying in the station. And I kept saying to them, uh, look, I'm sorry for swearing. I had to apologise for swearing. I'm so pleased. Yeah, well, now come on, this is it. Uh, I had to put, I said, because I could see their reaction. Please, I'm sorry for swearing. Don't book me. I'm sorry for swearing. I've been raped. And they just fell on death ears because they were just doing all this formal stuff, paperwork and stuff. I kept begging. Then I saw a policewoman come out into the room. Uh, she was to, to come and take me to a cell to strip search me. And, um, and I looked to her and I thought, well, I'm going to say something to this woman because she's a woman. She'll get it. Uh, yeah, you know? she'll get it. And I said, can you please help me? Um, look, I've been raped and I've come to report it. But I swore and I'm getting booked for indecent language. And she said, oh, well, bully for you now, love. Get your gear off. Uh, and get in the cell here. It was a padded cell. Get, and get your gear off. And she d did what she had to do. She she was just, just really cold and detached too. She didn't care. So I was locked up for the night. And so uh, next day... Uh, uh, it was kind of, it was just a bit blurry. Um, after a few months, I felt very, very dark and depressed. And I, and they got me a job in a uh, factory ma uh, uh, where you make all this brasso, you know, cleaning, shoe cleaner, liquid stuff. Mm. I drank a couple of bottles of those and I slashed all my wrists and I was feeling really dark. I can remember I just felt um, as low as I've ever been, you know, in my entire life. I, 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 I still have a kind of memory of how it was so low. And, I, yeah, and so I, I was admitted into the psych ward and... Be, and um, how long were you there? I was, there? I was only there for a few days, and then I wanted to come home. You know, I wanted to come home. And I guess uh, what you can say about this is, like, why why do we wonder why Aboriginal women don't go to police and don't go to services when they've been hurt? You know, um, they're not designed to uh, respect and acknowledge Aboriginal women. Their um, cultural is, ways, everything you know, and that respect for uh, their their social conditionings, and just generally speaking, that the fact that it all boils down from the get go of invasion of this country, it's generational trauma, transported uh, from one generation to the next. And this is a few years ago that this happened to you, but do you think that this is still the case oh, in Australian justice? Really? Oh, definitely. Yeah, this is why. Yeah, I've seen why I'm instrumental in uh, carrying the message now because, and I, I get a definite response because I've lived it. I know that I experienced it. How long did it take you to start opening up and talking about it? Do you reckon? Well, initially, from a practical point of view, I had to quit uh, anaesthetising with alcohol and drugs. That happened in the 25th of September 1983. And I um, went and um, uh, 
followed a dream that I've always wanted to learn to play a saxophone. I always loved the sound of a saxophone. Oh, you're kidding. So you only learned when you were how old? Oh, 27, 28. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, and I've been blowing since. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, actually, people might have seen you in uh, in Newtown. Newtown, Redfern Station. Tearing it up on saxophone. Broadway, ripping it up there. Yeah, and see that, yeah, I've... It's good. I, I'm able to make some dollars to make ends meet, you know. Still waiting for my big break. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is why I love going busking too. It, it It's so good for my mental, emotional, spiritual well-being because so many people talk to me and I get so much from it. It's not just a busking. and make, The money is just a bit of a bonus, yeah. but it makes people feel good, you know. And I guess, I mean, you're, you are... You embody the Australian, especially Aboriginal Australian blues. You know, wow. you are the the uh, pinnacle of that <laughs> oh, because well, you've lived it. I've lived it. Yeah, I, I, I've I've paid my dues to speak the blues. I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm out busking, I play. You know, I like to play melodic stuff too. Might it may be a corny tune like Misty or whatever, but no, it's not necessarily corny. You know, because I'm a I love, I'm, I'm, I love jazz. I listen to a lot of John Coltrane, but I love, um, you know, I love playing ballads because I think that's appropriate. I don't want to get out in the streets and do some sort of uh, bebop kind of... I think when people are coming, when they're going through their day-to-day drudgeries, I, for my experience as a busker, I always think it's, it's better to play melodic mm. ballads and soothing stuff to pepper the air. For me, I think ballads like Misty and it could be the Carpenters, you know, why do birds, da 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 Well, should we take one of those now? <laughs> do you have a particular favourite? We've got Misty Blue. Oh, uh, now, now Misty Blue. Or we've blue, got I'd Rather I... Go Blind. Oh, I'd Rather Go Blind, my favourite blues girl of all time. So Edith you'd rather James. go, I'd Rather Go Blind. <laughs> Don't take it literally. <laughs> I'd rather go. I don't want to go blind over a bed. And what is it about Etta James that really speaks to you? Oh, look, man, I, I, I just get tears in my eyes. I listen to her a lot. She, she, she even looks like an Aboriginal woman, and she sings sort of. She sings the Aboriginal woman scorned depth kind of grit blues, but then she can sing a beautiful. Jazz at at last, or oh, at last, as we say it, you know, she can do at stuff last. at last. <laughs> My love has come, come along. along. <laughs> <laughs> come along. But, yeah, yeah, but she does this wonderful gritty stuff, you know. She does Howl and Wolf's Spoonful. Oh, her version of Spoonful is just amazing. And she's just the epitome of where I want to be as a blues woman. And what I love is, too, we got a lot in common. The old photos of Etta, she looks similar to how I looked when I was young. We're both Aquarians. We're both the same age, only yeah. she passed on earlier than me. I've seen photos of you as a young as a young lass. Yeah. Damn if, girl. And if you, you put a blonde wig on me, I'd look very <laughs> Etta, I swear now. And she's been through rehab. You know, she's had her struggles with addiction. That's why I love her. But most of all, she's got the most... Um, Best voice I have ever heard from a blues woman yet. Beautiful. You're going to get a bit of a musical education today on Out of the Box. FBI 94.5. Marlene Cummins is my guest today. Here we go. Etta James with I'd Rather Go Blind.
father of your son. He was actually a Vietnam veteran, wasn't he? Yes, yes, he died. I saw him in his uniform and he looked quite striking, you know, this beautiful, confident Aboriginal man, tall, broad-shouldered, very good-looking. And, uh, yeah, and he enlisted he, uh, to go to Vietnam as Vietnam was dressed up as a career too at the time as to why a lot of young men um, fell into that trap. Um, Especially if you couldn't find work, I guess. Yeah, well, that's it. A lot of blacks, even America, got attracted for the same reason, black and poverty-stricken. And um, so, 
but I got with Vern when he came back, and um, I'd been uh, drinking at the time too. I'd slipped in and out sometimes with drinking, uh, and in this particular time, I met him through his wife's niece, Pearl, and we were at the Alliance Hotel. She introduced me to him, and we hit it off like a house on fire, and... Uh, we had a great night, and then he said, "Oh, I'm 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 going to go to to JP's. I'm doing some bouncer work down there." And I said, "Oh, we're going down there." And you know, Pearl, we had, she was playing Cupid, and and so we went down there, and I met him down there. And on the odd occasion, he'd just come over and have a couple of dances. Uh, he was uh, doing uh, bouncer work there. And, uh, yeah, like I said, we hit it off and the song came on. It was towards the end of the night. And as in the old days, you know, they always play a slow love song. Everybody waltzes to before you go home. And uh, they played Sammy Smith, helped me make it through the night. And so we knew we had to go. I said, well, um, and I was a bit, uh, had a few, I'd had a few. And I just brazenly, (laughs) boldly said to him, well, then, uh, um, you going to help me make it through the night or what? <laughs> <laughs> so saucy. And uh, you've been with me for the past hour, actually. And Sammy Smith was your was your goopy moment, your very um, yeah, yeah. daggy, romantic, romantic moment. moment. Now we're going to go slightly cooler. We're turning, turning up a bit with some buddy guy. So Feels Like Rain. Can you tell me a bit about why you wanted to bring on Feels Like Rain? I just love a good guitarist, but he goes a great blues guitarist. Uh, he's a great blues musician. I've seen him live. And I've also got a version of Feels Like Rain on my album, which you can download on iTunes. So here we go. Yeah. We've got Buddy Guy and Out of the Box FBI at 94.5. And thanks so much, Marlene, for coming on the show today. Really appreciate it. I've it so much. And thank you very much, I thoroughly enjoyed Downhill the river Leads to sea And in this sticky heat I feel you Open up to me Love Comes out of nowhere, baby Just like a hurricane And it feels like rain And it feels like rain Lying here Underneath the stars Right next to you I'm wondering who you are And how do you do How do you do, baby Clouds rolling Across the moon And the wind howling out your name And it feels like rain Let it feel like rain
And it feels like rain 